0: (laughs) Can you guys hear me okay? All right, awesome. Thank you so much, Gi. I'm a little afraid to move this myself, and so it's super helpful. Um, If I haven't met you all already, oh, okay. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Well, my name is Mandy. That's not a very complicated intro there. Um, I lead the prayer ministry here at Reality, and uh, much to my surprise, I teach here now and then on a Sunday. So um, it's my pleasure to to be able to share God's Word today. we get to spend time in one of my favorite passages in Acts, and so I'm just looking forward to seeing what the Lord is going to do through this chapter and through the rest of our journey through Acts. But before I get started, let's pray. Um, No one really needs to hear a message from me, but we definitely need to hear from Jesus today, so let's just ask him to be present with us. Lord God, um, we are so thankful, God, that you are already here. We are thankful that we can trust that just as you've revealed yourself in your word that you are a God who is present with us. And Lord, I just pray that today through your word and through the rest of the time that we have together today in musical worship and prayer and fellowship, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord. We pray that you would challenge and confront us in the ways where we need to be challenged and confronted. We pray that you would comfort us in the ways that we need to be comforted. We pray for healing. We pray that if there's anyone here who came in with a burden on their hearts, that you would lift that burden, God, that you would show that you are the one whose yoke is easy and light, and that the life you call us to is a life of obedience, but it's also a life of rest and freedom and joy in you, God. So Lord, just teach us more of who you are today, God, speak clearly to us and help us to know you better. We pray those things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Uh, so today, I would like to begin with an inexcusably bad pun. Like honestly, this might be a failed experiment, but we're just gonna gonna try a thing and see what happens. Um, So are you ready? Okay. You should really check out Acts chapter 17. It is such a riot. You guys, because there's, there's riots. Okay, so this is, see now I can tell who listened to Rashad's last sermon by who just groaned and prayed and who was like, what? It's okay, I'm gonna contextualize for us why that, why that bad joke came up. Um, but let's, let's kind of orient ourselves now in the book of Acts. So at this point, things are getting pretty crazy. So Acts is already this like, larger-than-life story where we see this small group of Jesus followers become a religious movement that's just sweeping across the Roman Empire. So the leaders of the early church are preaching life-changing news, and they're performing miracles, and they're delivering people from oppression. And the message that they want to share with the world is this. God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ to seek and save the lost, to give rest to the weary, to offer us forgiveness of sins, and to bring healing and wholeness to all of humanity. So in the book of Acts, Jesus' followers are traveling from city to city, sharing this good news. And everywhere they go, there's this tension between those who reject the good news, the gospel, and those who believe and rejoice. So this tension really comes to a head in last week's passage. So Paul and Silas, um, these leaders, these followers of Jesus, travel to a city in Macedonia called Thessalonica. And some of the religious leaders there are so jealous of them that they, I'm quoting here, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house where the apostles were staying. So Paul and Silas had to flee to a nearby city called Berea, and here they're met with genuine interest. The Bereans are excited to investigate the gospel. But just when everything seems like it's going well, guess who shows up? the Thessalonian haters. Somehow, they got word that Paul and Silas were successfully preaching in Berea, so they hurry over and they start agitating the crowds until another riot breaks out. So Paul has to escape and he leaves the others behind and he's escorted to safety in Athens and that is where our story begins today. Now, this could be an incredibly discouraging situation for Paul, he's without his companions his missionary team, he's escaped not one but two riots, and he's somewhat directionless. I say this because Paul had gone to Macedonia because God had specifically sent him there. If you remember, Paul and friends had originally been planning to go into Asia when the Holy Spirit redirected them and gave Paul a vision of a man asking them to come over to Macedonia and help us. So when Paul arrives in Macedonia, he was being directed clearly by a word from God. When he arrived in Athens, however, he was being chased and fleeing to safety. In Macedonia, Paul started out with a clear sense of direction. Athens feels almost accidental. But as we see in the book of Acts, and as we learn, we learn, the more that we walk with God, when you follow God, almost nothing is accidental. Paul's location had changed, His sense of direction may have changed, but the mission hadn't changed. Paul's an apostle. That literally means sent one. So his life is committed to going to the ends of the earth and literally just telling everyone about the good news of Jesus Christ. And we've already seen that he'll do this whether he's in a jail cell or in front of a crowd of thousands or meeting with a small group of women having a prayer meeting. And I feel like this is an important reminder for us in Boston, many of us don't know how long we'll be here in Boston. We may not even know why God sent us here in the first place. So it's helpful to see Paul's answer to the question, why am I here, is basically the same in every circumstance. He is there to proclaim who Jesus is to a broken and hurting world, the news that they need to hear. So the wisdom in Paul's approach is that circumstances may change, but the joy and comfort available to us in the gospel does not change. So Paul doesn't root himself in a place so much as in the mission of God to rescue and to bless others wherever that takes him. And because of that, Paul is able to keep his missional focus as he enters the city of Athens. So the story of Athens is incredibly rich and there's so much we could talk about, but I feel like today, this is what the Holy Spirit is inviting us to focus on. So just three main points. First, the Gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ calls us to confront our idols. Second, the gospel deconstructs our misconceptions about God and about religion. And third, the gospel brings us face to face with the one true God. So first, the gospel calls us to confront our idols. It's a big topic. I'm going to take a drink. I'm like, I don't know if you guys, the, my mask makes my mouth so dry. So, so we have 20 minutes left to go. Um, All right, let's talk about idolatry. All right, so (laughs) when Paul arrives in Athens, so the text says that he is greatly distressed to see that the city is full of idols. So an idol is just a physical representation of like a god or goddess from the Greek mythology, the pantheon, Um, but to say that the city was full of idols is not an exaggeration. As you were approaching Athens, even from the harbor, you could see the top of the goddess Athena statue on the hill, like on the Acropolis, and there are these sacred memorials just lining the roads to Athens. I used to live in LA and um, as I was studying this passage, I started to imagine one of those Hollywood celebrity bus tours, like where you go around and see celebrities' homes, because you could hear those when you were walking the streets in LA. And so I was imagining what the ancient Athens version of that would be like. So in this case, the tour guide could be like, and on your left, you'll see the temples of Demeter, Poseidon, Dionysus, Athena, Zeus, and Apollo. And to the right, you'll see the temples of Hestia, Ares, Aphrodite, Hephaestus, the Dioscuri, Serapis, and that's right, Zeus again. If I was an Olympian, I would be like, hey, why does Zeus get two temples? But what can you do? He's king of the gods. And on our way up to the Acropolis, keep your eyes out for the idols of Asclepius, Themis, and Gaia. Those are just ahead. Clearly wanted to be a tour guide once one time. Um, by the way, I did this because... This is a literal list of the idols and temples that you would see as you made your way through the streets of Athens. One satirical writer from ancient Greece actually said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So what is the deal with all of these idols? As a modern Western Christian, it's hard for me to really wrap my mind around the idea of making sacrifices and praying to a statue like something that you would see in an ancient art museum. So Tim Keller, the theologian and pastor has this great book called Counterfeit Gods that talks about what idolatry looks like in our modern age. So listen to this quote by Keller. The old pagans were not fanciful when they depicted virtually everything as a god. They had sex gods, work gods, war gods, money gods, nation gods. For the simple fact is that anything can be a god that rules and serves in the heart of a person or in the life of a people. We look to personal achievement or financial prosperity to give us the peace and security we need. Idols give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? What, if we lost it, would make life not worth living? Perfectionism, workaholism, chronic indecisiveness, the need to control the lives of others, all of these stem from making good things into idols that then drive us into the ground as we try to appease them. Idols dominate our lives. So there are so many great sound bites in that quote, but there's one that I want to focus on in particular. Idols give us a sense of being in control. And I think this is key to understanding what's happening in Athens. So idolatry comes, in part, from this deep-seated cosmic anxiety that we have as humans. Because the world around us is unstable. And people in the ancient world were acutely aware of this. In modern America, we often operate under this kind of facade of prosperity and security. But now that we've experienced a pandemic, we've started to catch on that life is inherently unpredictable. It's chaos, it's disappointments, it's a constant confrontation with our own limits, our vulnerability, our smallness, our inability to sway the winds of fate. So I'm not trying to give you a panic attack. Um, I'm trying to build a bridge for us to understand why someone in ancient times might worship an idol and why, as Keller explains, we basically do the same thing. Idolatry is born out of a desire to change your circumstances and to control your destiny. And the construct of idolatry says that if you follow these rituals and observe these holidays and make these sacrifices at these particular temples, then you can persuade the gods to help you out. If you can just jump through the right religious hoops, the powers that be will be on your side and you can get what you need. Now, I think that is something we might be able to relate to. Even those of us who have been Christians for years can default to thinking that we need to earn God's favor, that we need to perform, to say the right words, to offer him something of value, to keep us in his good graces. But I want us to compare that attitude, the perspective of idolatry, to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is from Matthew chapter six. Jesus says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus says, do not worry. And I don't think he says it to shame us, he just knows that we do worry. But if left unchallenged, worry will tempt us to idolatry. If we become fearful that we can't get what we want or need unless we manipulate reality somehow, we'll go running after anything that promises to help us. We'll make sacrifices to all sorts of idols to get rid of that feeling of insecurity, of not having enough, of not being enough. But if we trust in Jesus, we get a God who says, hey, don't worry, I will take this burden from you. Don't run after idols of comfort and security, follow me, and I will care for you. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Paul, which is why he's distressed to see the intelligent, accomplished, historic city of Athens full of idols. Because listen, idols do not try to alleviate your worry. They exacerbate them. And here's what's tricky about idols. The Greek pantheon, their a collective of gods, mostly represented good things like wisdom, abundance, good health, the arts. And when we think about our modern-day idols, those can also be good things, things we're rightly passionate about like personal growth or the pursuit of justice. But this is where idols will deceive us. We have to ask ourselves, are we compelled by a human-powered approach to self-improvement? or a human-powered approach to social justice? Or are we being compelled by the power of our faith, which then leads us to pursue these important and necessary things? Are we being led by Jesus? Or are we just adding Jesus to our pantheon of other gods to serve our purposes? See we have to be careful because if we worship anything other than the one true God, we are worshiping a human construct that comes with human limitations and we will end up crashing right into the wall of our own sin and brokenness. Only the true God knows how to actually fulfill our desire for these good things in a way that won't wreck us and won't enslave us. What we need and what the Athenians need is to surrender our desires and our need for control to the true God who is limitless in his power and limitless in his love for us. So I want us to ask ourselves, where have we been turning when we start to feel that cosmic anxiety? <laughs> I feel convicted right now. It's like, where do I? I, I? I know that the answer is not Jesus as often as it ought to be. But when we hear those voices of, I don't have enough, I'm not doing enough. I will never be enough. What idols do you find yourself turning to? And what would it look like to surrender our cares to the God who loves us? So Paul's heart is aching because he can see that the Athenians are enslaved to idols, and so he begins preaching Jesus in the synagogues, and the marketplaces, and soon, He's causing quite the stir. People are, some of them are condescending and they say, what does this babbler wish to say? And others just misinterpret him. They think, oh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities? Uh, Even the best educated people in Athens seem puzzled. They ask Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. So that brings us to our second point. The gospel deconstructs our misconceptions about God and about religion. So ancient ancient Athens was known as a center for like intellect and philosophical thought. So if you wanted to make it big as an orator, as a philosophical teacher, you went to Athens. One commentator said that Athens drew more philosophers than it could accommodate. The way that Hollywood draws actors or Nashville draws singers. So when Paul shows up, people just assume he's another aspiring orator looking for attention. But the new god, new god, that Paul is preaching gets enough attention that they bring Paul before the Areopagus. So the Areopagus is this group of about a hundred aristocrats, so they're upper class, educated in philosophy. And their role in Athens was to investigate foreign cults and determine whether visiting speakers would be granted public lectureships. So this gives us a better idea of the kind of expectations versus reality that's happening in this meeting between Paul and the Areopagus. So the Areopagus expects that Paul wants them to give his foreign god official status in Athens. And if they were persuaded, his god would receive a dedicated temple and a feast day, and what's more, the approval of a new god in Athens often set the precedent for worship in other cities. So the Areopagus, is assuming that they are sitting in judgment of Paul's God. Needless to say, Paul sees it a little differently. So Paul quickly makes it clear that he was not there to prove the existence of any new God. He actually argues that Athens already recognized the deity he was speaking of when they erected an altar to the unknown God. And then Paul begins, to deconstruct all of the Athenians' assumptions about what gods are like. So the Athenians expected Paul to want permission to build a temple. But Paul says his God does not live in temples built by human hands. The Athenians expected Paul wanted an official feast day where people would come from throughout the city and offer animal sacrifices to his God. But Paul says that his God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. The Athenians believe that their ancestors sprung from the soil of the land, making them the only true Greeks. But Paul says that his God is creator of all and he rules the nations of the earth and appoints the seasons in which they rise and fall. And hearing that was likely a reminder that Athens once had a great empire, but now they've been conquered by Rome and their glory is fading. The Areopagus is expecting Paul to present a God that fits in their boxes, but the nature of the one true God is that he transcends our categories. Like where does God live? Everywhere and nowhere, he exists outside of time and space and yet, out of love, he also resides in human hearts, the hearts of those who put their faith in Jesus. What exactly is Israel's God the God of? What isn't he the God of? He made everything. Galaxies we've never even heard of are under his dominion. And yet, he chose to come to earth in a human body for humanity's sake, to atone for our sins. So Paul takes the boxes that the Athenians have for their gods and he blows them up. So I want to challenge us to think about this question. What boxes do we put God in? Where do we limit how big God is? How powerful God is? How forgiving and loving God is how completely beyond our comprehension God is as an eternal and infinite being and yet how close to us he is as the God who chose to make his people a temple for his Holy Spirit Paul challenges the Athenians' thinking about God, but he also encourages them and appeals to ideas that are familiar to them, that God is not far from each one of us, that we are his offspring, and in him we live and move and have our being. The Athenians have some sense of God's nearness, of a divine being who's the creator and sustainer of life, but they don't truly know him. Their limitation, as Paul points out, is that they have kept their ideas of God inside these boxes of gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. But Paul says it is time to break God out of the box. And today I wanna say the same thing to us. If we have placed limits on who God is, it's time to break God out of the box. It's time to ask ourselves, are we trying to define who God is based on our preferences and our preconceptions, or are we responding to who God is as revealed in Jesus? Paul shows the Athenians that a choice needs to be made. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Remember that the invitation to repent is an invitation to freedom. Paul is saying, rid yourselves of these insufficient gods and embrace the one true God but repentance is so challenging for us as humans. We wanna find loopholes and excuses and justify our behavior. But listen, that is the opposite of worship. When we repent, we are saying we're sorry for our wrongdoings, our rebellion, our selfish and stubborn ways, and we are also acknowledging that God is on the throne. We are agreeing with his judgments that whatever he declares right is right, and what he declares wrong is wrong. And he should know because only he is truly and purely good. So listen, if we believe that God is the God of Scripture, the one who came to earth in Jesus and died for our sins and now invites everyone to eternal life in his kingdom, if we believe this, why wouldn't we come running when he calls? Why wouldn't we forsake our broken ways and follow the God who freely offers forgiveness? God is extending mercy to Athens, but how will they respond? How will we respond when God's offer, when God is offering us to repent and be restored? So now we've arrived at our last point. The gospel brings us face to face with the one true God. So I wanna travel back a little bit to the beginning of Paul's speech where he observes that the Athenians are very religious. And he says, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. This is my favorite part of the passage. I think it's so compelling and that's probably because I personally really resonate with it. So the last time I taught here on a Sunday, I shared part of my testimony, but I wanna share a slightly different part today. Quick background, those who don't know me, um, I come from a non-Christian, non-religious family. I became a Christian when I was in college, and in the years leading up to my decision to follow Jesus, I'd say that I was kind of like an aspiring philosopher who worshipped a form of God that was kind of vague and unnamed. In some ways, I was kind of an Athenian who had set up an altar to an unknown God. I'd collected ideas from these different philosophies, like self-help articles and just personal preferences I had and just smush them together to create something that was vaguely in the form of God. So some of these ideas were not bad things, things like believing that we should strive to do good in the world, or that love was a binding force in the universe, or that we were created for a purpose. But my God was not a personal God. If anything, my God was basically a philosophical defense that I was trying to be a good person and live the right kind of life. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Athenians felt similarly, like, well, of course God is on my side. I do what's good, and I make sacrifices, and I pray. I cover all my bases. Like, what more could God want of me? But at the root of it, my idea of God was transactional. I did what I was supposed to do, and therefore, surely, he would bless me, as if God kind of functioned according to an algorithm. But that meant I had to anticipate what this mystery deity wanted of me and then find the willpower inside of myself to just do it. And as a result, I was living with the cosmic anxiety that we talked about earlier. My reality was unstable. All my life decisions felt like educated or sometimes honestly uneducated guesses. And if I made a mistake, there was no guarantee that the divine would be on my side when I actually began exploring Christianity, there was this interesting season where I read the Bible regularly, I actually prayed to Jesus, and I actually thought that he was probably the son of God. But there was still something holding me back. I hadn't told anyone yet that I was reading the Bible, and I had never been to church. I was kind of tiptoeing around the perimeter of the pool, but I wasn't willing to actually dive in yet. So This quickly became unsustainable, and so I finally decided that I needed to talk to someone about my faith journey. So for some reason, I was looking at my university's Religious Life page, and I saw that the Associate Dean of Religious Life was a Christian, so I booked an appointment with him. When I sat down with him, I must not have been very specific about what I was hoping for the conversation, and I realized in retrospect that he felt like his job was to help students navigate all the religious options on campus. He starts talking about how we have this great diversity of faith groups that I could try, and so he starts going into the different Eastern religions and Islam, and then he moves on and talks about the groups that were more focused on like a shared philosophy or like a humanist outlook on life, and as he went on, I actually found myself getting impatient. I was trying to be polite and to not interrupt his obviously sincere efforts to help me, but I just kept thinking, when is he going to get to Jesus? So at long last, um, he mentions Christianity, and he says, what I think is unique about Christianity's view of God is that Jesus is a God who makes himself vulnerable. And he references this image of Jesus on the cross and says, Jesus is the God who is willing to endure unimaginable pain and suffering because of his love for humanity. You might have already guessed that in this conversation, Jesus already had me at hello, but that sealed the deal. I was crying on the way home thinking about it, about the experiences that I'd had with God, and listening to what he said, I was like, yes, that is the God who met me, this God who took on a heart of flesh, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who loves to the point of death. I want to worship him. When I look back, the irony is that I was being offered like this buffet of religious options, and if you had asked me one year before, literally, I would have thought each one was equally valid. Any path could lead to God, who among us really knows? But that was before I had experienced the love of a personal God, a living God who was my shepherd and who gave me water when my soul was thirsty and who comforted me when I was overwhelmed and who walked with me throughout my life. I needed more than just a pile of ideas that I could just form to the general shape of a God. I needed to encounter something real, a God with his own spirit and his own heart. And once I encountered the vulnerable, self-sacrificial heart of Jesus, I realized I didn't want any other God because idols made by human hands paled in comparison to the flesh and blood Jesus. So at the end of Acts, we hear that some people sneered at Paul's message, and others seemed welcoming. We want to hear you again on this subject. Some people became followers of Jesus, including a member of the Areopagus and a woman named Damaris, and it says a number of others. But not everyone receives the message of grace. Some are still worshiping the idol of their intellect and looking down on a God who doesn't fit their expectations. And that's true in the city we live in. Some turn away from the invitation of Jesus because they believe humanity can cure every ill and find a solution to every problem. Maybe others hesitate because the invitation of Jesus sounds too strange and unbelievable. I mean, a God who died and was resurrected, what is that? But if the gospel sounds a little out of this world, then great. If we take a realistic look at the deeply broken world around us, we will realize that we need something, someone beyond this world and outside of ourselves to rescue us. And the good news is that the invitation of Jesus is available to all of us, no matter where we've come from and no matter what idols we've worshipped in the past. The desire of God's heart is clear in this passage that we should seek God in the hope that we might feel after him and find him, and yet he is not far from any of us. So Acts 17 ends with a challenge to us to give up our former idols and give ourselves to the God who offers us life. Because if we desire to know God and live in his love, there is no room on the altar for anyone but him. So I'll end with this quote by Tim Keller, again from Counterfeit Gods. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for just the reality that this is who you are. That you are a God who forgives. That you are a God who invites us to draw near to you. That you are a God who looks at the brokenness inside of us. That you want to heal it and that you can heal it. So Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts of surrender to you, that we would stop carrying burdens that aren't made for us, that we would stop rushing around trying to serve the whims of our idols and that we would say, we want to give this over to you, Lord. Help us, unburden us, Lord. Help us to give our hearts fully to you and to basically just run our hands over the altars and and let every idol come smashing to the ground in the face of who you are. Jesus, we ask that You would welcome us to you, that you would forgive us, that you would restore us, that you would remind us that you are a God of infinite patience and love, and that you want us to come to you, Lord. Help us to seek you today. In Jesus' name, amen.